Hey, everybody. Uh, thanks for being with us. Welcome back as we finish out the week. And we do so in kind of an interesting spot. The, the Probably especially the passage we're going to cover today, but even the, the passages we'll look at um, early next week, perhaps all of next week, there is a kind of dividing line in these passages. They've evoked a lot of conversation through the years about what they mean. And within the church, there are essentially two groups. One group has said historically, we just think they mean what they say. We, we just think that you take those at face value, and that's what it means. The other group, which has comprised a lot of different traditions and strands within the church, has said, yeah, we're not sure about that, and we think there's more to it than that. And that group has worked probably the hardest on these passages to try and figure out what some of this language means. So um, what I'm going to do is just read the the whole passage today, and then there really is a lot to unpack, so we'll take a look at it. Michael and I aren't going to solve anything for you today, but we do want to bring you up to speed on some of the conversations that this text has prompted through the years. So uh, jumping in at verse 11 here, uh, let a woman learn in silence with full submission I permit no woman to teach or have authority over a man. She is to keep silent. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing, provided they continue in faith and love and holiness with modesty. So um, I... I don't know exactly where to start on this, so I'm going to tell you some word stuff that we may circle around to. The word woman can be translated wife. Um, that has caught people's attention. Also, uh, the word silence really means quietness. The, that word doesn't have to be mean silent. It can mean sort of be reserved, be be quiet, a, a certain stillness. Um, also, people have found it very odd that in verse 15, you have first person, she, in the front of the verse, and plural, they, in the back half of the verse. And that has been a head-scratcher for people. And then um, it's possible, again, in verse 12, the word man can be translated husband. In fact, we'll see that in the very next passage. And so there's some language stuff in this passage that's been difficult, even despite, in, in spite of and in addition to the content, which is also difficult. Yeah, so uh, once again, definitely want to uh, follow up and agree with Clint on, on the lead-in here. I want to make a point uh, as we're looking at this text. Once again, I, I know I say this often, so I apologize if this sounds like a broken record, but I think you do need to read texts like this in context. I think they help us to have a much better sense of what was intended. And therefore, as we really switch into gear to understand what it means uh, in our own context. But here, um, notice that yesterday we talked about this idea of modesty, and it was it was spoken of directly uh, in this idea of dress and what is worn. That is significant because here, as we transition to verse 11, when it says that a woman should learn in silence uh, with full submission, this is another form of modesty. This is another way of reflecting a cultural ideal in which women would be 
would be put in right order in that cultural milieu. If you look at uh, some of the writings done about women and their place in leadership in, in this time, and certainly in a cosmopolitan place like the church in Ephesus, it, it seems reasonable that this is an extension, that no longer a physical extension as as it was with, with dress, but now a, an extension of a social relationship, of uh, the actual constituted order of the Christian community, that this is a form of modesty. And this may, in Paul's mind, uh, once again, I, I'm inserting a little bit here, but it's reasonable to believe in Paul's mind. This connects back to that, once again, an idea of not sticking out, of being a, a, a group of people who are able to live humbly, peaceably, and able to practice the faith without drawing the ire of those outside the church. Now, you know, if that's the case, it doesn't smooth over what the text says. That I mean, Paul clearly says what he says, and uh, and we wrestle with that. But I think there's a sense in which we can step back before we get to verse 13, which I think has some really interesting theological connotations, and we understand it. it's not just as simple as reading it and thinking that we know the direct output, uh, because Clint is right to point out there's a lot of textual things happening here. I would argue there's also a lot of contextual things happening here, and we want to bring all of that awareness with us into the text so that we don't just start checking boxes and walk out. Yeah, there is a kind of theology in the background here that we refer to as natural theology, and it's the idea that you can look at the created order and build some theological understanding of how God works and how the creation works. And that really is not uh, an exclusively Christian way of thinking. That was true. There's natural theology within Judaism. And to some extent, Michael, though it would look very different, we could argue that the, the Romans, the Greeks, the, the pagans— in their own way, had a kind of natural theology. And what what they would have shared, what those systems would have shared at the time, is this idea that when you look at the world, you see that men are stronger, men are in authority, men, you know, conquer. And they would have extrapolated from that, that, that that's the right way, that that's how God intended, because it's what is. Now, since that time, Christians have argued, I mean, I shouldn't say we have argued, but we've asked a lot of questions about that because the gospel seems contrary to what we might, a lot of the places we might go from natural theology, which is to say, well, in nature, the biggest and strongest preys on the weak, preys on the sick. They they don't care for it. They, they abuse those. They eat those. And we would say, clearly, that's not a lesson that we want to take from the created order because Jesus tells us something just the opposite. And so the, how far natural theology can be trusted has been a longstanding discussion in the Christian church. It was raised really pretty early. And interestingly enough, even people in the early church, the ancient church, who would have agreed with the the takeaway of these texts raised some very serious questions about natural theology and some very questions, very good questions about this text. And, and I think we maybe most clearly see that in verse 15. Verse 15 has led a lot of people to the conclusion that Paul could not have written this book, that, that 
You just would not hear Paul say this thing. She will be saved through childbearing. And interestingly enough, in Greek, it literally says the childbearing, the childbirth, which some have argued is a reference to Jesus. That's maybe a little thin, but there is an article before it in Greek that doesn't get included in English. But if you went through Romans with us, you will remember that Paul spent half of that book laying out the case that we are saved by the grace of Jesus Christ, and we bring nothing to that. We don't contribute it to it. No work that we perform influences it, affects it, or causes it. And for that same theologian to now say that a woman, by bearing children, somehow takes part in being redeemed, that she has some role in her own redemption. I, I mean, this is this is so out of place with everything else Paul teaches that the best biblical minds in the history of the church ha- have really been left kind of scratching their head on it. Right. So I would go back here to verse 13 because I think it helps us. This idea that Adam was formed first, then Eve. Um, Adam was not deceived, but the woman was and became a transgressor. This, this is classic kind of Old Testament interpretation that we see uh, in lots of different texts and places. So I just want to make it clear that this idea that the Genesis text shows us a kind of ordering, once again, the word would be natural theology, so the way that the, the world is ordered, and then that from that we learn these spiritual truths is not groundbreaking theology at all. In fact, it very much smacks of a very kind of Jewish interpretive framework. Mm -hmm. And that makes sense because if you were with us for Genesis, you know how much of that book was built upon the idea of genealogy about who's the heir going to be. And and not just the heir, but the spiritual heir, because we know how often the physical heir and the spiritual heir sometimes uh, got uh, out of the natural order kind of sink, and God went with the youngest as opposed to the oldest. Now, all these kinds of things, right? So the point I want to make here is when we get to verse 15, when we get this idea of salvation through childbirth, it, it does not just drop in to this out of the blue, though I think it strikes most of us as coming out of the blue. I, I think if you understand where it sits in a, a tradition that holds that we see in Genesis the ordering of of the problem, and so therefore we would expect the ordering of the solution to undo it, right? The idea that it was the woman who caused the problem, which if you read Genesis, by the way, it doesn't take interpretive gymnastics to see that both Adam and Eve sinned. I mean, that that is apparent in that text, but it's the interpretation of it that was common that says then that well, then it makes sense if it was the woman, then it's the woman by this action who in some ways unravels that. That is, to, to accentuate Clint's point, radically different than what we hear when we're told in Christ there is no slave or free. There is no Jew or Gentile. There's no male or female. The one who writes that seems very much opposed in idea to the one who wrote this, unless... I think you're willing to understand that there is a kind of framework that this may have been written within and an understanding in which it was intended. That doesn't take away. I'm certain the author intended it as it reads. 
And, you know, that doesn't resolve the tension for us. And I know, Clint, we're going to talk a little bit about how we wrestle with that as modern readers of the text. But it, it is to say most of us, and if I'm going to be honest, I would fit this, this group as well, we come to a text like this and our gut reaction is instinctive and we respond in such a way that we, we, uh, we find it very hard to hear and learn from the text because we want we just get our fists balled up and we're, we're ready to you know clock Paul in in the jaw and I I understand how we get there but if we're willing to uh, be a little bit more of an interrogator of the text I think we find some really interesting things. Yeah, it's interesting. I think there are two things that are true of this text that are both in their context hard to hear on either side of the discussion. So for those. Um, who are troubled by this text, those who are in traditions where this is not the norm, in traditions where women take part in leadership, for those who are women in the church and have been leaders, these words are very hard to hear. And there is an upside in them. The the fact that Paul says, or the author says here, let women learn, it, it doesn't mean much to us, but it is itself a stride forward in the day because in that moment there were people who said women aren't women couldn't go into the synagogue for instance and take part in the educational piece they couldn't be a part of the conversations with rabbis so the fact that Paul says here let women learn is something significant though if you are offended by the rest of these words it's going to seem you know like faint praise on the other hand, if you're a person who would read this and say, well, it says it, that's what it must mean, and it doesn't just mean it in Ephesus, where yes, maybe there were some wives who were causing trouble, and maybe this is Paul telling some husbands, hey, you need a little better scene control. You need to, your wife is acting up, and, you, and she needs to be quiet, and you need to step up and be a leader. I don't know if that's happening, but whether or not it is, there are people who would say, well, that doesn't matter. This says women don't speak in church. That's the rule. Well, the problem with that is there are numerous, and, and I don't mean a few, I mean a, a plethora of other parts in Scripture where Paul praises women who have worked with him, where he calls them fellow workers in Christ, where he commends their effort, where he commends their knowledge. Timothy's own grandmother is going to be praised as a woman of faith. And he remembered, if you remember, Timothy, what you learned from your grandmother, he's, he's, he's going to make that specific appeal. What she taught him about the faith. And it, it, it then, in the context of all these other things that Paul says, it makes it strange that we would grab these particular verses and treat them as if they are the end of the story, because clearly it's more complex than that. And it, again, this is not, Michael, this isn't really the Presbyterian struggle because we've not tended to live on the literalist side of the fence. But for those who have, it it is it is perhaps telling that these are the verses they choose rather than yeah. those other ones. And I, I do think if you look at all that is said, you have to, you would have to admit ultimately that you're picking a side. 
Oh, yeah. I, I don't think you could say that this is the main voice that Paul speaks to the issue across the board. I, I just don't think that would be a fair summary of what's out there, what's in the scripture. If you're a literalist and you read this, what do you say about Lydia? I mean, someone who very clearly yeah. uh, is wealthy and Syntyche is, and Euodia. I mean, it, it, they are important and they're actually called leaders in the church. Uh, so when you're said that. Uh, I permit no woman to have authority over a man. There are literal texts where women that are named as being leaders of Christian communities. So, yeah, you're exactly right, Clint, that there there is trouble when you come to the bi- biblical text and you're looking for each and every sentence left unto its own uh, inscription to give us particular and, and literal guidance for this particular thing. Because the problem with that is we get fixated on the very law that Paul was just criticizing uh, just a few short chapter or verses ago. And so, you know, I do think it's worth noting here as well um, that as we come to a text like this, we both have to ask what was meant by Paul in the, uh, if this was indeed written entirely by Paul, uh, to the community uh, that it was sent to. In other words, if if you were alive and you were in that a church family, and you receive that letter, what would have it meant to you there, right? You know, what was Paul addressing? That is one very interesting line of inquiry, and biblical scholars have written entire books on this section. And so if you're interested in that, there's a lot of resources uh, that you can jump into. Um, but there's another very interesting line of inquiry that I think leads us a little bit further to ask if Paul was writing to our Christian community in our own context, in our own time, what are the principles that are included in this that Paul may then speak in our own place? That must be done with a substantial, substantial level of humility, right? Uh, because no one here is writing Scripture. And so we must come to the interpretation of Scripture with the full awareness that, that we are doing so as humans who are so quick to put our own assumptions and our own judgments and worldviews in front of the, the Holy Scripture and what God wants to teach us through Revelation. By the way, that's partly why we read Scripture in community, is because other people help, help us to have checks and balances in those native kind of assumptions that we bring to the text. But that's an aside. The point I wanted to make is simply this. I want to encourage you, if you find yourself on the side that finds these words incredibly challenging, uh, maybe even you would say troubling, or maybe even you would go so far as to say offensive, if, if you find yourself there, I want to encourage you to consider when put within that overall arc of the gospel, uh, especially as we see Luke portraying Jesus as the one who comes for the lost and the least, the image of the woman caught in adultery brought to Jesus. He says, the, f- the first one with any sin, throw the first stone. Uh, an incredible mark of grace to a woman who in that culture and time would have, would have deserved none of it. Uh, when you look at the leadership of the early church uh, and the names of women included in that, uh, there is a substantial body of evidence, I think, to suggest that that we uh, we come to a text like this seeking to learn what it has to teach us about modesty and humility. And I'm not speaking particularly of women here. I, I think as church people, what does it mean to be modest? What does it mean to have an honest appraisal of authority and who we put in authority? What are the measures of that? And, and how does 
our salvation in Jesus Christ become thoughtfully pursued in the in the actions that we take. I think that too is a very helpful line of inquiry. And if there's some who that's going to make uncomfortable as well, and I understand that, uh, but I think it's important that we come to the text with an openness to engage it in lots of places because I, I think the text is big enough to meet us in that line of inquiry. And um, I, you know, I can't soften it. Um, and I don't think it's right to try to fill in the gaps to make a, a text that that does say what it says um, easier. But I do think it's worth recognizing the complexity of it because it's deeper than you might think. Yeah, I, I think we should at least acknowledge that while it does say some things that are troubling, it, there are lots of question marks. There are question marks about the translation, about the language. There are some significant question marks about some of the theological implications. So we, I think, with humility, have to admit it is very unlikely that we understand everything that this text was trying to say or perhaps is trying to say, and we should therefore treat it very carefully. We should not use it as a weapon. Um, Paul is, as one of the commentators said, trying to use a wrench in Ephesus, and we have often created a sledgehammer outside of Ephesus. And I think, mm-hmm. you know, I think that it, it is worth being humble as we approach a text like this. And it is also worth remembering that one of the things the Scripture will do for all of us, including the early church, is to help us ask questions of our culture, to help us ask questions of the assumptions around us and reevaluate those assumptions in light of who we understand Jesus Christ to be. And that that's true in our conversations about things like gender, uh, how we treat each other, what it means to have authority, what it means to learn, what it means to submit. All of those things have to be reexamined through the lens of the cross and the resurrection. And I think this text is a gives us a really good opportunity, though a difficult one, to do that. Uh, Clint, I don't want to misspeak, so correct me if you disagree. I just want to be very clear. Uh, I am unaware of any Reformed theologian that I've read who would argue that verse 15 and this language of should be saved through childbirth. I'm, a, I'm unaware of any Reformed theologian who would be willing to say that the action of a human can result in salvation. I, I, we, we firmly believe in what we, what we believe to be the overall gospel narrative, that salvation comes by grace alone, through faith, in Jesus Christ. And so, I, I want to make it clear, if you uh, come to a text and think, well, we have to read that literally, then I think you're going to struggle with the, the very literal text of Romans, where the a fundamental theological understanding of what salvation is 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 mapped out, and so I just want to make it clear that um, you're we're going to have to wrestle with fifteen because I'm not aware of anyone in our tradition historically who would make that case. No, there are people who would make that natural theology connection to Genesis three, where the penalty for sin for Eve was a more painful childbirth. You know, yeah, right. But Adam shares in the punishment, not that punishment, but he gets his own sets of punishments. Clearly, he's also guilty. He doesn't stand innocent. It's not her fault. They are both, the man and woman, both kicked out of the garden, both sentenced 
to hardship in life and toil. Um, and, you know, Michael, I think maybe the, a good place to put a pin in that for now is, as a general rule, folks, it, it is a good interpretive approach when you have entire books that say one thing and a verse that seems to say something else, go with go with the majority. Go with half the book of Romans. Go with Galatians. Go with Ephesians. Go with all of the places that the Bible teaches something. And when one verse stands out that seems like it says something different, realize that that verse is going to be a struggle that we may or may not be able to make sense of. But one verse doesn't negate entire chapters of very clear, very thoughtful, very important teaching. Um, now, if you don't think that can happen in the Scripture, if if you live on the side of the fence that says, well, no, the Scripture doesn't ever disagree with itself, then you have another approach to take. But for those of us in the Reformed Church that know, that understand this is a complex and complicated document, go go with the weight. I mean, take the bulk and don't get too... It, it don't get too troubled by the exception. Go with the rule. Tis is the reality of holy mystery. I think it's well summarized. Thanks for being with us, friends. It's a joy to have you with us. Uh, if you found this helpful, uh, give it a like. Uh, love for you to subscribe for future studies, and we will see you next week. Have a good weekend. Mm-hmm.